Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would transform our lives as we're looking at it tonight, that it would impact us in a, in a powerful way. So have your way with us. Be glorified and exalted now as we're giving honor to your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Wednesday nights are overview of the Bible in a year. We are closing in on uh, just about being done with the entire Bible in overview fashion. And so I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Most good things actually bear repeating, so it's okay that I bear it and repeat it. But if you're reading the Word, uh, or if you're coming here expecting this to be the fullest extent of what you get out of the Word of God, then you are selling yourself short. Because the reading of the Word, the declaring of the Word of God in a church context is meant to be a great addition to what you should be doing on your own time. Uh, it is not a replacement, it's a supplement, right? Uh, it, it's, a, it's like a great multivitamin or a great medicine or whatever else. It can really go a long way. But if you're not eating basic food, then you're in trouble, right? It doesn't matter how many multivitamins you eat, sooner or later you need calories, fats, carbs, proteins. Multivitamins aren't going to cut it. So you need to be experiencing the Word of God in your own life, in your own time. And the good news is, as we get farther and farther through the Scriptures, you have less and less of an excuse for not doing that. Because, uh, you know, Book of Genesis, Book of Deuteronomy, Book of Ezekiel, there's some very long books in the the Bible that take a a lot of work to get through. But I sat down today and read Philippians in eight and a half minutes. Uh, It's actually 8.22. But uh, I'm, I'm a pretty fast reader, so I know that, but that being said, I think probably just about everybody here could make it through Philippians in 15, 20 minutes, and, and if you think you don't have time to do that, and you have an iPhone, Apple has very helpfully put a thing on your phone called screen time. So you can look at your phone and tell how much time you spent looking at your phone today, and if it's greater than 15 minutes, then by definition you had time to read Philippians. And so, just throwing that out as a lovely guilt trip. Um, but in context, as we're looking at the book of Philippians tonight, we need to remember a couple of things. It's written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, to the Philippians, okay? Um, but to back it up, let's put it in context of who is this church and, and what do we know about them? And we actually know a decent bit uh, from the book of Acts, chapter 16, which Uh, Just a little bit to the left. You don't have to turn there. We're just going to kind of overview it. But Paul started the the church at Philippi on what most people would call his second missionary journey. And he went to Philippi and a church was birthed. But we can can sort of just say, okay, yeah, Paul started a church. And then Paul wrote a letter to encourage the church. That's great. But a little bit of context goes a long way. How did Paul start the church at Philippi? Well, it began with him getting in a fight with his best friend to the point that they couldn't talk to each other anymore. And they just went separate ways. They said, you know what? We're both going to keep serving the Lord, but we can't do this together. So they split up. Paul lost his best friend. And then he decides to go out and serving the Lord. And he's trying to go one direction. And it says the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go that direction. He tries to go another way. Can't go that way. Tries to go this way. Can't go that way. Basically, he runs out of land. He hits a, a city called Troas. And the reason he stopped at Troas is because on the other side of Troas is the ocean. And so he just ran out of real estate. He's trying to figure out where God is leading him, and he kind of he just comes up against a brick wall, and then 
He has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, would you come over and, and help us? And so Paul's like, all right, I've got a, you know, I've got a vision from God. I'm ready to go. We're going to go help these people over in the Macedonian region. And so he goes to the city of Philippi in the region of Macedonia. And uh, he's been there for a few days and nothing happens. And on, on the Sabbath, he goes down to the river, which is traditionally where Jewish people would gather. And there's, there's women who had assembled, but it doesn't even say there's men. So we know that uh, there would have been less than 10 Jewish families in this community that Paul went to because that was the number that they had to build a synagogue. So there's no synagogue in this place. This place has really no background in the word of God. And so Paul just shows up and starts sharing the gospel. It is not an overnight sensation. In fact, shortly after that, he cast a demon out of a girl. And because he cast the demon out of the girl, uh, her slave owners, who were profiteering off of the fact that she was demon-possessed, start up a riot and get Paul and his friend Silas beaten up, thrown into prison. And, and you can go and unpack it even further, but uh, it wasn't like the cushy prison. It wasn't where, like, you know, tax evasion people go. Uh, it was where you don't want to go. It was actually uh, in basically the septic tank of the prison. That's where they went. And you can actually go to Philippi today, so I've been told, and you can find the actual building and you can look in the ruins and say that would have been the prison. That's where they would have been. And it's not a pretty place. Uh, but while they're there, it says they're singing and rejoicing in the middle of the night and an earthquake comes and their chains fall off, all the doors of the prison open up and instead of running away, they stick around to evangelize the jailer. And then after that, basically, Paul leaves town. And, it, and it's like, well, wait a second. He, he went through an awful heck of a lot for not very much, right? We know there's a woman named Lydia who gets saved. There's a girl who had the demon cast out of her. There's a jailer and his family. And then Paul just leaves town. So, so was, it, was it a worthwhile investment of his time? Well, you know, I mean, think of all the circumstances he had to go through to get there. Well, what was, what was Philippi? It was the first place in Europe to hear the gospel. Now back up for a second and, and ask yourself, how has the world been impacted by the fact that Europe had the gospel? For better or for worse, um, that's one of the most probably pivotal points in world history is when Christianity came to Europe. That has changed everything about how we know the world. But to Paul's perspective, what did he do? Lost his best friend, went to town, got beat up, got thrown in the septic tank, got a couple, you know, a couple people got saved, that's great, and then we just keep moving. And that's, that's the founding of the Church of Philippians. And now Paul's going to write this letter to them. This is probably 10 years later or so. And he's writing a letter of encouragement to the church. And, and I spend time on that because Philippians is really a book of, it's a book on circumstance. Philippians is Paul's commentary on circumstances. And it's a great, you know, as Paul would write these letters to different churches, he would at different points in time emphasize certain things. You know, Galatians is all about the grace of God. First and Second Corinthians are about order in the church. Romans is all about the gospel and how it should impact our lives. And they all overlap to an extent, right? But Philippians is specifically, in a lot of ways, Paul's commentary on circumstances in the Christian life. And in that sense, it has a ton of application because we all have circumstances. Some of us have fun circumstances. Some of us have 
not so fun circumstances. Some of us have easy circumstances. Some of us have hard circumstances, but we all have circumstances. We are all living life in this world and life is happening. We're doing life, okay? And so Philippians then becomes a super, super practical commentary on what do you do when you're living life, when you're just doing life. And so I want us to pause. We're gonna, I was talking to Mariah earlier this morning. I said, tonight's probably gonna feel like a pinball machine um, as opposed to every other Wednesday night, which is completely laid out and logical. Um, but start in chapter one, verse 12. We're gonna read a couple chunks and then we'll go back and, and move through the book in a little bit of a straightforward fashion. But chapter one, verse 12, Paul says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Now, flip over to chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Paul's writing this in prison. Okay, this is not, you know, we, we, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how many times he's been thrown in prison and beaten up and almost died. This is one of these times. Paul's in prison right now, writing a letter of encouragement. And he says, hey guys, I want you to know that my circumstances have just turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it awesome that I'm sitting here in prison and the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is going out and impacting lives? He says, it's great. You know, I get, a, I get a new shift. Every eight hours, I get new guards who come, or 12, whatever it was. I get new guards who come in who haven't heard the gospel. He says, you know, the, um, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. The whole, you know, group of soldiers who are guarding Paul have all heard the gospel. They know exactly why he's in prison. It's not because he was breaking the law. It's because he was fulfilling the commission to declare Jesus Christ. And he says, on top of that, my fellow brethren are now encouraged to share the gospel, right? Because, well, what the heck? You know, I mean, yeah, they could throw us in prison, but that's still a ministry opportunity, so we might as well just go for it now. He says, the gospel's going out. The guards are hearing about it. The fellow believers are being emboldened. Some of them are actually doing it just because they're selfish and they want to grow their church while I'm tied up. So what? The gospel's going out. Paul says, I really don't care about my circumstances. And then in chapter four, when he's talking, he says, basically he's responding to a financial gift they had sent him while he was in prison. And he's saying, hey, I'm super thankful for that. Um, but I'm not saying thank you in the, you know, kind of the classic, like, well, that was a, 
great gift. Would you like to make a monthly contribution? He's like, no, I'm just legitimately thankful. And I want you guys to know that I appreciate your gift immensely, but I'm not guilt tripping you in it because I'm content in wherever I'm at. I've learned how to have lots of money coming through as people are making contributions and I've learned how to go hungry and I'm, I'm good with it all. And that really is those two chunks is pretty much the entire amount of time Paul's going to spend in this book talking about his circumstances. The book is about circumstances, but it's not really about circumstances. Because why? Because Paul's got bigger things going on. And what he doesn't do, and this is important for us to recognize, what he does not do is say, everything is going great. He does not say, I don't have struggles. He doesn't say, I'm not having problems or I'm not having issues or I'm not having people who are trying to stab me in the back for the sake of the ministry or whatever else. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not denying reality. But what's he doing? He's acknowledging a much bigger reality. That, you know what? God is doing something in the midst of my circumstances. God is working in the midst of this. And so, you know what? Yeah, it's hard, and it's rough, and it's not always fun, but who cares? That's Paul's commentary on circumstances. And, and so the rest of the book really uh, is just promises from God and exhortations. Right? Hey, in the midst of circumstance, remember these things. Remember these things that God has told us and hang on to them. In the midst of circumstances, here's some exhortations. Here's some things to do. You want some practical nuts and bolts? Right? Paul doesn't, you know, Scripture doesn't go into a ton of like high philosophy. And I mean, it's a very philosophically uh, comprehensive religion. But Christianity excels in nuts and bolts, right? Uh, James is going to say, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. He doesn't say, now let's discuss what exactly anger is and in the metaphysical properties of the tensions in your, in your blood vessels expanding to bring. He doesn't care. He says, no, you'd be slow to get angry. Right? The, the scriptures give us practical advice. And so Paul's going to do that. He's going to give us promises from God that we should hang on to and exhortations from the Lord that we should try to walk in. Okay, and so what we're going to do basically for the rest of the night, or for the next 30 minutes, is look at some of these and just try and unpack them and understand in the context of, you know, the hardship under which this church was founded, the hardship that Paul is going through right now as he's writing this, there's a lot of pain and suffering going on amidst these people. And in that, Paul is writing. Paul is not writing to, you know, a church of surfers on the beach. He is, he is writing to people who are living a hard life. And so bear that in mind. Now let's go through the book. So chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His opening statement is, is very classic. It's how Paul opens. He gives them a benediction. He says, grace and peace. Now, we've said it before, but you always got to remember when you're reading through one of Paul's letters, Paul always says grace and peace. Uh, in one of his epistles, he says grace, mercy, and peace. But they're always in that order because you never have the peace of God in your life until you've experienced the grace of God in your life. If you are not saved, you have no peace. And you won't have peace until you experience the grace of God transforming your life. Now, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Now, it's interesting that he says it like that. He did not say to the pastor of the church in Philippi and whoever he chooses to reveal the word to. 
Who does this book to? This book is to the church. And oh, by the way, the elders and the deacons are allowed to read it, right? This book is written for the church. This book is not written to have a priest or a pastor or somebody else explain to you the truth so that you can abstain from the responsibility of taking in yourself. This book is written for you. This book is to the saints. Who are the saints? Anybody who believes in Jesus Christ, right? And even, you know, the overseers and deacons, deacons we talked about before, deacons are just people who help out wherever needs to help. Our church has a uh, total acceptance policy on deacons. If you want to be a deacon, once we're done here, you walk out back when they're cleaning up the tables and you say, what can I do to help? You're a deacon. Congratulations. You're helping do the ministry of the Lord in whatever capacity it needs to be done. Right? It's not some sort of fancy elevated title. It's just, hey, where's God going and we want to help? So the book of Philippians is to all of us. And then in chapter six, verse, sorry, chapter one, verse six, he says, well, we'll back it up to chapter one, verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. I am so thankful every time I think of you guys. Every time I remember you. Every time I remember getting beaten up and thrown in that septic tank, I am just so thankful Verse six, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That might be one of the most encouraging verses in the scripture because I am not perfect, right? Uh, I don't, nobody's shocked. Uh, Sorry, Uh, but I'm not perfect. I've got a long way to go. Right? The Philippians weren't perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. You're not perfect. What does Paul say? I am confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. He will complete it. Isn't that encouraging? You know, sometimes we can, we can wrestle with the fact that our lives don't feel like we're bearing fruit fast enough. Right? I mean, you can, you know, you can be just, there are certain sins that just come back over and over and over and you know they're wrong, you know what they're gonna do to you, you know the shame you're gonna feel, you know they are not gonna satisfy you and you still walk in them. And you can think, man, am I, do I even, am I even saved? Do I even understand grace? Do I understand the gospel? You know what? He who began a good work in you is gonna complete it, right? Do not, do not get discouraged if life is hard. Do not get discouraged if you are still weak. Because you are still weak. Congratulations. God is still strong. Right? God is still perfecting you, and he is going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul just kind of, he's going to keep shifting, not not shifting, he's going to keep just hammering home these different points. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ... If there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, if anything about Jesus Christ is true. Verse two, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. If anything about the gospel is true, Paul says, then fulfill the gospel by focusing on others. If you want the most practical, basic application for how can I live a godly life, 
Focus on somebody other than yourself. That's, that's just, that is like the best step. And he goes on and explains it. Why? Verse 5 of chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance like a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's saying if Jesus Christ is real, if the gospel is true, then live a life that is others focused. Why? Because that's the exact same attitude and mindset that Jesus Christ had. Paul says Jesus was God, but he didn't feel the need to prove it. He didn't feel the need to make sure during his time on earth that, that we were all, you know, bowing down at every moment and adoring in every way possible. He emptied himself. And, you know, Paul's describing things here that we can believe as Christians, but really have a hard time grasping. Because Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man at the exact same time. I have no idea how that works. But it's one of the most foundational principles of Christianity, right? That Jesus, as God, was in some way or another willing to bottle up that divinity into a form that we could actually look at and interact with and touch so that he could take the lowest point possible and die on a cross for our sins. And because of that, God has exalted him. Paul's saying, if, you want, if the gospel is real, it should impact your life and the way you serve other people. Verse 12, so then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my own absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says, listen, guys, you've always been great at, at receiving instruction, so here's one for you. Work out your own salvation. Now, what does he say by that? What does he mean? Is he saying that you're responsible for being saved? That you're responsible for making sure you get in heaven? No, not at all. Not at all. Because why? Right after that. For it is God who is at work in you. So, you know, it, it's, it's supposed to be a, a perpetual circle. And people want to get tied up sometimes over is God completely sovereign or are we totally responsible and are you a Calvinist or an Armenian and who even cares? Because God is completely sovereign and you're completely responsible for your response to him, right? So work, be a diligent Christian. Do not be a slob Christian. That's, that's a waste. That's wasting what God has done in your life. Don't be a slob Christian. Why? Because God is doing all the work in you. The fact that you're able to respond to the gospel at all is because of the grace of God. It's because he loves you. It's because he's drawing you to himself. So which one comes first? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. God is doing a work in your life. So what do you do? Let God do a work in your life. Work, do the will of God. Verse 14 of chapter two. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. Okay, we said nuts and bolts Christianity. Whatever you're gonna do, don't whine about it and don't argue about it. Paul's like, all right, we can, we can, okay, great, great. So, he, he, but he goes on, finally, my brethren, chapter three, verse one, rejoice in the Lord. Now, Paul, 
like a lot of great pastors after him, had a knack for putting his finally right smack in the middle of his teaching, right? Paul, you could in essence say, uh, we're just going to do chapter 3 and 4 real briefly here. Um, <laughs> but he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. So what are we supposed to do? In the midst of, bear this in mind, in the midst of circumstances, in the midst of hard circumstances, in the midst of painful life, what do we do? Rejoice in the Lord. Is that easy to do? Not, not really, right? That's not really easy. And I'm, I'm going to be honest here. This is, um, this is not my strong suite in life, right? Uh, Philippians is one of these books that I love in part because it always challenges me. And I remember <clears throat> last year at the, you know, the, what's now the Jesus Conference in Kentucky that used to be the, the men's conference, we were going through Philippians. And they asked me to teach a chunk of chapter one. So I taught on circumstances and, and how our circumstances shouldn't really be a factor in our response to the Lord. And, you know, did a teaching on it. And it was either later that afternoon or the next day or whatever, dad just quietly and graciously and just once said, you know, I bet if you applied everything in your life that you just taught in that teaching, you'd be in pretty solid condition. And I said, oh, I know, you're absolutely right. Because here's the deal. I can stand up here and declare to you what the word of God says. That doesn't mean I've fully grasped it or fully attained it, right? But Paul says, what do you do in your circumstances? You rejoice in the Lord. Now, he doesn't say be happy because happiness is a feeling. He says you rejoice, you take joy. You make it a point to find joy. Joy is not a response to something happening. Happiness is good things happened, therefore I feel happy. Joy is, it can be that, it can be, wow, good things happen and God is so gracious and good to me. I don't deserve it, praise the Lord. It can be, awful things are happening. But by the power of God, I have the perspective to see what really matters. And so I am still thankful in the midst of awful things happening that God has saved me. I'm still thankful that even though I might not fully grasp it, God is in control. I'm still thankful that he's working things out for his pleasure and his good will. I'm thankful I'm not driving this ship right now because I'm pretty sure I would screw it up. We take joy in the Lord, right? And, and, and oftentimes, you know, happiness and, and pleasant thoughts and emotions follow along with that. But do not let your Christianity be dictated by your feelings. You tell your feelings where to go in Christianity. By the power of God, you decide that you're going to take joy. He goes on in, in verse 7, and this is a great passage. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And if you correlate that with chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, You've got to understand, everything in my life revolves around Jesus Christ. To live is Jesus Christ, to die is an even greater reward. And I was listening to a pastor this week who said, if you substitute that word Christ with anything else, that statement doesn't work. To live is pleasure, then to die is not gain. To live is money, then to die is not gain. Right? To live is romantic relationships, then to die is not gain. But if you live for Christ, then it doesn't matter whether you live or die, you win. And he says, all right, so whatever things were gained to me, those things that I used to really hold on to, you know, to, to, to live is whatever else and, and to die is loss, 
He says, those things I've counted almost all is lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He says, you know what? I don't count anything in my life as worthwhile. Not when it's contrasted with the fact that I get to know Jesus Christ personally. Nothing matters. It's not like, you know, sometimes we break it down in our lives. Like, what's, what's the most important thing? And we say, well, you know, God, family, church, work, whatever else. No, 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 no. It's God. And then somewhere else in the fine print, several pages later, is family, church, work, you know, all these other little things. But God takes preeminence over everything else. He says, nothing else matters. Nothing else. Doesn't matter what kind of house you live in. Doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. Doesn't matter who you're married to. None of it matters in, re- in contrast with who God is. Because if you do not know God personally, then none of it matters. And so he, he's laying out for us this perspective, right? In the midst of circumstances, in the midst of living life and life being hard and challenging, Paul is saying, you gotta understand There's really one thing that matters when life is hard. There is one thing that matters when life is easy, and that is Jesus Christ and do you know him? That's what matters. In in chapter three, uh, verse, well, verse nine. Well, we'll back up to verse eight and just start again. Um, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that's derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He says, I'm, everything is lost to me because so that I can gain Christ and have his righteousness. Not my righteousness, not things that I've done, but what? A righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Righteousness is not going to come from anything you do. It's going to come from God when you believe that he has saved you. And verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I can't wait to rise from the dead. Death has no power over me. And I'm excited about this righteousness that I have in Christ because now I can know him and I can know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul says, I know God. And we're like, yes, I know the power of his resurrection. Yes, we know that we're gonna rise from the dead, that death has no power over us. We know that we can share in the fellowship with Jesus Christ. What the heck? What are we gonna do with that? Paul says, this is one of our privileges. Elsewhere he'll say, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So circumstances are hard, right? But Paul says in chapter two, verse five, have the same attitude in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ went through a lot of circumstances, right? Now, I mean, some of us have lost jobs and, and, you, and taken a demotion, uh, you know, lost prestige or honor or whatever else. You gotta remember, Jesus went from God to God-man. Jesus went from God to a sperm and an egg, to, to, to life 
inside the womb. Right? He was, he, Jesus reduced himself to a cellular structure. That's a big reduction. That's a long way. I don't care how far anybody in this room has fallen. You have not fallen that far. Right? And so sufferings and circumstance are what? They're a means for us to recognize the depth of what Christ has done for us. That doesn't make them fun. That doesn't make them easy. That doesn't make them pleasurable. But it makes it, in a sense, our privilege. We get to have the same mind which is in Christ. Do you think Jesus ever on earth missed being in heaven? However that works, I don't know. But do you think he ever like, you know, missed angels falling down before him and having absolute power over the entire universe? To somehow bottle that up into, into a, a man who's, you know, probably 5'6", 130 pounds? Probably not a big guy. That's a, that's a big contrast, right? And when we suffer, when we go through hard circumstances, what are we? We are getting to participate and, and experience the same joy that Jesus Christ experienced. It says, you know, uh, in Hebrews, says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Jesus saw the big picture. He saw resurrection. He saw a restored relationship with humanity. He saw himself back in heaven, seated at the, at the throne with God the Father. And for that joy, he endured the cross. And so for us, in our circumstances, for the joy of what God is doing, we say, okay, this, is, this, this stinks. But, like Paul said earlier, there's only one thing that matters. That's Jesus Christ, and do you know him? Okay, and then, but he goes on, and, and it's an encouraging verse, verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect. Paul says, okay, here's what I just told you. Now, I can't honestly say that I'm totally there all the way, right? Paul isn't uh, 100%, Paul is not a perfect human being. He's like, here's what you do. I'm still working on it too. So, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He says, I have not arrived yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. Paul says, I have not arrived. I keep messing up. I keep stumbling. So what do I do? Forget the past. If you've repented of your sins, God has forgiven you. God does not, he's not swept them under the rug. He has not covered them up. He has removed them. They are gone. And so don't you go and try and remind God of them. You forget the past. What do you do? You press forward. Christianity is a forward-facing religion. We're not trying to get in touch with a past life or a past experience. or unpa- No, no, what are we doing? We are pursuing Jesus Christ. And he says, this is what you do. Right? All these truths, all these exhortations, they only, you're not going to be able, ever able to say, I've perfectly applied the book of Philippians to my life. Now I'm ready to move on to the book of Colossians. That's not how it works. No, no, you're never going to arrive perfectly until you are fully perfected. But he makes a point, he says, as many of us as are perfect need to have this attitude. And you can look at that and say, well, I'm not perfect, so why do I need to have this attitude? No, no, no. In the eyes of God, we talked about this in Romans and Galatians. In the eyes of God, you're perfect. 
If you've, if you've received the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have asked the Lord to forgive your sins and, and reunite you with him in fellowship, then in God's eyes, you're perfect. God has wiped away all your sins. And so, if you have understood and accepted and received the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what you've done. You're perfect in the eyes of God. That doesn't, that's not an excuse for you to sin. That's a reason for you to keep pressing on. That's a reason for you to keep driving, right? To keep forging ahead. Why? Because in the eyes of God, you're perfect. And, you know, so what do you do? Because God is at work in you, work out your own salvation. Work. Do not be, do not expect that God is, is going to just, you know, no, no, I'm saved now so I can do whatever I want. No, no, no. That's not how it works. I'm saved, therefore I get to participate in the call that God has laid on my life. And so just, we're going to cover a few more passages. Uh, verse 20 of chapter 3. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have circumstances going on that are bad, you know what? This is not your home. You know, think of it like, uh, you know, if you go camping, right? Usually, let's say you go on a, on a week-long camping trip, tent camping. Nobody really expects you to smell nice at the end of that, right? Seven days on the ground, wood smoke, mosquitoes, whatever else. Nobody expects you to smell good by the end of that. Why? Because you're camping. It's sort of, it's sort of an expectation, right? It kind of comes with the territory. You go camping you're going to get filthy. And, and honestly, campers make fun of the people who try to work around that, right? I mean, I'm not a hardcore camper, but I'm pretty positive that tent campers make fun of camper campers or trailer campers, right? That's not, oh, that's not real camping. Why? Because you're trying to, you know, you're trying to live it up and, and, and stay in the AC while we're out in our tents. Well, you know, whatever. The point is, you're not home, right? If you're at home, and you're going to have a nice romantic date with your wife, and you come in smelling like you've been camping for seven days, there's, there's a little bit of a problem. There's a disconnect somewhere, right? Um, but, but when you're camping, it's like, hey, yeah, okay, whatever. We're camping here on earth, right? This, bo- this body right here, this physical body, Paul refers to it as a tent. And sooner or later, the tent breaks down and, and folds up, and you try and put it all in the bag, and then you throw it away. Right? This tent is going to break down. This tent is, is, not, this is not what I'm designed to live in long term. There's a body waiting for me that I'm going to live in forever. Right? So, yeah, circumstances are rough. You know, you get mileage on your engine. Some of our engines have got more mileage than others. But, you know, the engines wear out sooner or later. doesn't matter how often you change the oil. Engines will sooner or later burn out or rust out, or something. But sooner or later, you stop driving them. And your body's the same way. So circumstances are hard, but that's not a problem. If you, if you stink in this life, you're just camping. And, and the Lord is doing something in your heart. So don't let your circumstances drag you down, because you're just camping. You're on your way home, but you still smell. And that's okay. Chapter 4, he says, Therefore... My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Guys, just, he's saying, stand firm. 
you know, Ephesians says, hey, having done all, stand. And, and standing is a great little thing because you can't always, you know, charge. You can't run, not everybody can run a marathon. Not everybody can do whatever. Standing is just kind of this quiet act of defiance. We're just, you know what? I'm ready. Whatever God calls me to, I'm here. I'm standing. I'm standing fast. I'm ready. I'm prepared. Whatever God calls me to, I'm standing. And verse 4, we're just going to read the last few verses here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In case you missed it back in chapter 3, he wants to make sure we understand rejoicing should be a part of your walk with the Lord. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. In uh, 1 or 2 Timothy or Titus, I forget which one, Paul says the leader in the church should not be a brawler, right? That doesn't mean, he did not say let your doormat spirit be known to all men. Let your gentle spirit. It's okay to be strong and tough in the context of control, self-control, a gentle spirit. The, uh, the Lord is near. Isn't that a nice encouragement? Right? In the midst of your circumstances, God is near. He's near to you right now. He's also near to his return. He's coming soon. Verse six, be anxious for nothing. How much should you be worried about? Zip. And, and, no, no, no. Nothing. What, what would be a exception to this verse? Where would be grounds for saying, well, you know, you know, Philippians 4, 6 is a great principle for most people in the world. There is no grounds, there is no point in time at which we can say, this doesn't account right now. Be anxious for what? Nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. And pray with thankfulness. Your prayers should be marked by thankfulness to the Lord. And, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you've received the grace of God, like we talked about in verse 1, and you're praying to the Lord about everything with thanksgiving, then guess what? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. The peace of God, which doesn't make any sense will guard your hearts and minds. Your heart and mind will have peace in the Lord. And you'll be able to say, I probably shouldn't be feeling peaceful about this right now because this really is awful. And this is a little bit terrifying, but guess what? I'm praying with thanksgiving and I'm not being anxious and I've got the peace of God. I don't really understand how this works. But it says here, it's beyond my comprehension. So okay. Verse eight, finally, brethren. Paul's still trying to wrap up in a hurry. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now, he's not saying it's a sin to read the news or a sin to be aware of the fact that we live in an evil world. But where's your meditation? Where do you park your mind? Where do you park your brain? When you, when you are entertaining yourself or being entertained, where are, where are you parking? Are you parking on things that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, Excellent, worthy of praise. That's what the word tells us to meditate on. Verse nine, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. So this is a book all about circumstances. What people are desperate for in our world is to have peace. And we think that by changing our circumstances, we can somehow find peace, right? By getting a new job or moving to a new city or getting a new gender or whatever else, we have this idea in our culture right now, that we can find peace. 
No, no. What, how do you find peace? By the grace of God. Right? We have a, we have a world out, out, right outside the doors that is screaming for peace because they have a soul problem and they're trying to fix it with physical, pro, with physical solutions. You've got a soul that can have peace with God through grace. And once you have that peace, once you've experienced that grace and you're walking in that peace, then remember the promises of God. Remember that he who began a work is going to be faithful to complete it. Remember the exhortations of God, right? Remember to rejoice in the Lord, to be focused on others. Remember to, hey, say, you know what? Haven't arrived yet, but I'm pressing on. Remember to stand. Remember to dwell on the things that the Lord tells you to dwell on. And remember to rejoice. And what? And the peace of God will be with you. That's Philippians. That's, that's your response to circumstances. It doesn't matter what they are. It doesn't matter if they're good or bad or coming at you, you know, if it's slow-paced or fast-paced. Your response to circumstances is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and the nature of Christ impacting your life because there's only one thing that matters. Jesus Christ and do you know him, right? God, we thank you that we can know you. We thank you that we have that opportunity to have a restored relationship with you, to experience fellowship with you through your Holy Spirit by the blood of Jesus Christ coming and cleansing us from all of our sins. God, we thank you for the example of Paul who, who wasn't perfect, but who was pressing on for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would do the same, that we would follow in his footsteps. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your peace and your grace. Help us to always walk in them, to never lose sight of how incredible they are and let them transform our hearts and our lives. We pray that we'd go out here with a peace that attracts other people, a peace that causes them to wonder what it is, that we might be able to explain that it is you. So have your way with us, God. Go before us, guide us, strengthen us, and be exalted in our hearts. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.